0: Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voisin, the host of Inside Personal Growth, and we have Amy Gallo joining us. And Amy, where are you today? I know you're at home. Uh, I'm at (laughs) home. (laughs) Where is home?
1: Home is Providence, Rhode Island, the tiniest state in the country.
0: Ah, but (laughs) one of the biggest and best. So, thank you. (laughs) We'll just say that, Um, Amy uh, came. Way of Me by Connie Steele. I was just telling her, another author uh, in the Virginia area. And she has a new book out called Getting Along. Okay. And the subtitle is probably more important to work (laughs) with anyone, even difficult people. And this is a Harvard Business Review book. And for all of you out there, we're going to put a link to the book and a link to Amy's website as well. Um, but I will tell them a little bit about you, Amy, as well, yeah. so that they know. Again, she's the author of Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People, uh, the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. She also co-hosts Women at Work podcast and is a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review, where we sh- she writes about workplace dynamics. Um, this is a phenomenal book. It's a book that Anyone out there who's challenged today in the workspace, and I always say even in the personal space, should pick up and read because it's really about the archetypes, understanding the people, and then the solutions to dealing with those kind of people in your life. And a lot of times we don't know how to identify how someone's reacting or being right. Mm -hmm. So, Amy's got um, not only ideas, well founded solutions for this and so let's just get into it amy um right. you you know i love how you did the introduction to the book one was you know you had this difficult boss sounded like a real pain in the ass to me uh in <laughs> the introduction and the story it's certainly not one that all listeners have experienced at some time there's always a difficult person that we're dealing with at one point in our life um we know that the effects on our psyche um, really take a toll emotionally. And because we take it personally, you know, it's like um, uh, Carlos, the guy that wrote, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but he said the first thing is don't take it personally, but it's so hard not to take it personally. What advice would you give to the listeners about dealing with difficult people and not taking it personally?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, Oh, it's so hard to do. I mean, I I write about this day in and day out. And I also take these things personally. And I certainly did with that boss. I saw that as a personal failure because I prided myself on someone as someone who could get along with anyone. And suddenly I'm presented with this person who is, you know, making me stay up at night, (laughs) ruminating about her behavior, questioning my behavior, wondering whether I was living according to my values, Right, so it's it's you know it it is really hard not to take personally, but I would say a couple things. Number one, try to right size that relationship in your life. and by that, I mean chances are even if you're dealing with one, two, three, even four or five difficult people at work, chances are you have very good relationships with others, whether that's coworkers, whether that's people outside work really try to make sure you're focusing on those positive relationships as well. And that's because they'll, they'll often the they often the negative relationships will take up such a large portion of our brain that it sort of becomes all consuming and that that's really not not helpful both from a resilience perspective but then you also take away from those positive um you know sort of reinforcing joyous energizing relationships you have. Now, the second thing I'll say, and this is sort of along the lines of don't take it personally, but don't allow that person to, or that interaction to make you feel like this is how, that this is how a reflection on you, right? It's not about whether you are good enough at at handling difficult people or whether you know how to communicate clearly, right? Chances are that dynamic between you, there's a lot of reasons it's not healthy. And yes, you probably play a role, but it's not because of you. And I think that's the other piece of it is that both you didn't cause this and it's not entirely yours to solve. However, you do have the ability to take some action to make the situation better. And that's that's the third thing I'll say is you have agency. Sometimes it can feel like these relationships are happening to us or these difficult people are setting us up. And you actually have the ability to take action. And maybe those are very small steps you take. Maybe there's some of the bigger tactics that I share in the book, but it's in your control. And I think that can help restore a little bit of the um, sort of agency, sense of agency that we need in order to be constructive, take action, and to have you know healthy well-being.
0: You know, it, it it's really interesting. You're speaking about this. And just yesterday, um, I have a broker at Schwab who literally had a difficult boss and he was discriminated against. So ultimately Mm. he put him under such pressure for productivity that this young man quit, didn't fire. He quit because Mm. of the pressure, just that this person didn't like him. And as I was listening to the story, I said, well, you know, I'm not going to say his name can can you take something positive from this what could you learn and take away mm-hmm. from this difficult person so that when you hire on somewhere else where this new place is you're going to go it would be a perspective you could bring into the the arena which would make it easier for you and he goes wow you put that in a way he says because I'm just kind of vindictive I was just really pissed off all I wanted to do was you know, go to HR and tell HR this was the worst manager I ever had and all that kind of stuff. So I yeah. get it. And that's what this book is about so that you don't have to go to the HR department and talk to the manager. It's about you fixing that. So you state that you're an advocate for friendship at work. Yeah. Um, this is one of those where friendship didn't work. And you cite, I hope I'm saying this right, Vivek Murthy, the U.S. Yeah. Surgeon, yeah. Vivek, Murthy, US yeah. Surgeon General in his book, Together. Friendships are fundamentally connected to professional success. And it's our relationship that we find the emotional a substance and power we need to thrive. What are some of the benefits of having friends at work? And one, according to the Gallup polls, because, you know, people talk about this whole thing with friendships at work, and it's very confusing. You know, am I supposed to create mm-hmm. the friends and bosses, frequently upline managers who go, well you're going to be in a good upline manager. They can't be your friends, right? right? Because they're not your friends. So speak with us about it because I believe the US Surgeon General is right. And I believe Gallup is right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, And I, you know, I think for a long time, we thought there was danger in having close relationships with at work because we might have to deliver bad news, or we might have to have a difficult conversation. But if you have the skills to do those things, You can still be friends. And in fact, the research very clearly backs that up. I mean, Gallup has been, you know, studying friends and, you know, they've actually been asking for decades about friendship in their studies. And, and there have, they have long been reporting a a strong connection between having a best friend at work and employee engagement. And in fact, those who say they do have a best friend at work are seven times more likely to be engaged in their jobs be better at engaging customers to produce higher quality work and even have higher well-being. So, and, and interestingly, this was one of the st- studies from Gallup that I found really fascinating. They're also less likely to get injured on the job. Um and I'm not exactly sure what the co- what the connection there is other than that we know uh we are better At work, right? Social connections are a predictor of cognitive functioning, resilience, engagement, right? There was a really interesting study I came across. Higher levels
0: of productivity too.
1: Yes. And in fact, this is, this is one of my favorite studies I came across in the, in the work or in my work for this book was that a, a research team at Rutgers found that groups of colleagues who thought of one another as friends actually got higher scores on their performance reviews. Right. So we really are seeing this isn't soft. Right. I think a lot of times we think about friendships at work as like icing on the cake or as making us feel good while we do the hard work. But it's actually having friends at work and feeling socially connected to our colleagues makes the work better. We are better at it. And so I, th- I think we can't dismiss the importance of these connections.
0: Well, I think you, I think as an individual with friends at work, you bring higher value in collaboration skills as well. And that Sorry. collaboration skills helps to solve problems for the company, especially when you're doing it. Doesn't mean you're always doing it at work. You know, yeah. a lot of times you're talking about work when you're out having a pizza or something, right? right. Um, but the reality is, is that Ideas foster, creativity fosters, productivity increases, camaraderie increases, fun increases. And it's really important to have fun at work. And you can best have fun at work when you're literally working around a lot of people that you like. So, you know, I hope this whole mysticism around you're a boss and you're not a friend really can be dismayed. It's like it's like it's not really true. Um, That still can happen. And if you would speak about our brains on conflict, you know, like we just talked about this guy with conflict. He was just really like vindictive. I got to get this guy back. Uh, mm-hmm. You quote Victor Viktor Franko, Frankl, and this is a very well-known statement that he said that probably most of the listeners know, but between the stimulus and response, there is space. And in that space, it's our power to choose the response. And again, I totally agree to what Frankel said, who was in the mm-hmm. concentration camps. And what advice would you give our listeners about choosing the best response to conflict? Because I don't think you could have been in a more difficult position than to be in a concentration camp with an SS officer um, trying to break down and make you vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and talk about conflict, because you can imagine what they must have felt about these people who were trying to break them down. Const Just like this young man said, it was it, honestly, it was almost like the story of the concentration camp with this young man with the boss telling him, you're not worthy, you're not good, you're not performing, you're not doing whatever. And he just finally broke on his own. He broke. Mm-hmm. And I'm one thing I didn't say about the story is that since he has now been out of work four months, depressed, mm-hmm. wow. depressed yeah. as a result of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, what are our I brains think- doing on conflict?
1: Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, our brain isn't very good at determining real, the difference between threats. So the threat to our lives, obviously that's an incredibly grave threat. We have a stress response to that threat which is actually pretty similar to when someone makes us feel devalued or or dehumanized. And so, um, you know, obviously, you know, having an unpleasant manager or even a vindictive manager or an abusive manager is very different than being in a concentration camp. But our brain's doing the same thing. And what what Frankel was really talking about was the choice that we have in terms of how we react That we don't have to be subjected to the terms of or the conditions around us, but then we get to choose how we want to behave. Now, again, that's not very easy to do because our brain is going to have this moment of protecting us, which is going to either feel vindictive, angry, shut down, Right, the fight or flight reaction is very strong in all of us. So to, to get yourself out of that, you know, and what, what this is what emotional intelligence experts call amygdala hijack, where it's the amygdala, the part of our brain, um, that takes over, that's responsible for protection and for safety, you know, shuts it, you, it takes dominance over the prefrontal cortex, which is the rational thinking part of our brain. So we make choices that maybe would be best if we were truly being physically threatened, but when it's just we didn't get away our way on the project plan or this person is behaving passive-aggressively toward us or shooting down our ideas, that's not an appropriate response. And so what we want to do instead is sort of observe our reactions, right? What happens when you have that unpleasant interaction with a coworker? You know, for me, I get into telling my stories of this is all their fault, that I, I, they're an evil person, Right. Or blaming myself. What have I done wrong? Why can't I handle this? You know, or try to completely disengage. Like this isn't my worth. Worth my time. I'm done. Right. But right. the Sigal Barcena, who's one of an amazing professor, unfortunately who passed away last year, she talks about emotions as data, not noise. Because I think oftentimes we have those feelings. Like this this guy you're talking about. We have these feelings. That we want to get back at someone. We're so angry. And we think, oh gosh, that's, let me get through that noise. But those are, that's data about what you care about, what matters to you, what your values are. So pay attention to those and observing your reactions and your emotions and, and asking yourself what matters to you is going to help calm that, that amygdala. You know, you can also reappraise that you actually did that for that gentleman by saying, you know, what could you learn from this? So rather than seeing challenges as challenges, but as opportunities is a really great um, psychological tool that helps us get out of that fight or flight reaction. So, you know, instead of, um, you know, again, seeing it as a, a vaccine situation, you know, ask yourself, what can i learn here and, you know rather than a threat like what is what's the opportunity what are the thoughts running through your mind are they helpful is there a way to reframe them as neutral or positive you know if you're laser focused on a know it all colleague right that's one of the archetypes i talk about in the book and how they're just so excruciating to be with right can you tell yourself that when you actually put aside for a moment their condescending tone or that maybe their rants actually have a nugget of truth right can you find and and I don't want you to be pollyannish or naive right. and, and and dismiss right. the real harm they're doing but what's the what's the opportunity for you
0: and yeah and- you know it's it's um when you are put in that position where the the time between stimulus and response it's always been said you know take a deep breath, right? In other Mm -hmm. words, breathe into it, because it's giving you time before you become emotionally reactive, and then fall off or say something that you didn't want to say, or, and then that creates even more conflict, because then it gets to be a a circle. And when you look at fights or conflict, Mm -hmm. it's really this escalation yeah. Of one person jabbing, another person jabbing, and jabbing back and jabbing back until it escalates into something that's very quite uncomfortable. And, you know, in many cases, you may not call it a fight, but it's a mental fight. Um, yeah. It's a mental struggle that you're having, and you don't want to deal with it, so you walk away from it. Sure. Uh, and some people who are passive will just walk from that and just go, no, I'm not, I don't want it anymore. Um okay. You know, you spend a good percentage of your book speaking about the archetypes and characteristics yes. of difficult and challenging people. Now uh, You also provide the reader tactics on how to deal with most effectively these archetypes, which you outline in the book. Can you give the listeners a little overview of these archetypes, of which there's eight, mm-hmm. and the tactics to deal with these archetypes? And I think this is an important part of the book because and if you look at chapter after chapter, it's kind of about an archetype okay. um, and it's about an archetype and then reflection. You know, what what can you think about regarding this archetype? We may not have time to cover all eight of them because I do want to get to the important chapter, which is chapter 11, uh, mm-hmm. that speaks about, you know, some of these principles. But I yeah. do want the re- the listeners to understand how you've approached this book yeah. and how you can help them kind of quantify uh mm. certain individual's behavior into an archetype.
1: Yeah. So, and I'll, like you said, we don't have time to go through all of the archetypes, what motivates that behavior, what the tactics are, but I'll give an overview of the of the eight and talk about some of the tactics because I think, I think they give, they're helpful. And the reason I organized the book around archetypes, even though I don't believe in labeling people, right? These are not meant to be labels that you slap on someone to say, I'm done with you, I'm, this is dismissive you know, it, it's it's really, they're meant to help you get access to the specific advice you need. So if you're dealing with an insecure manager, the tactics you use are going to be different than if you're dealing with a know-it-all, for example. And you but, also
0: have an, a chart in the appendix. Yes. Which breaks it right. all down. And it says, yes. archetype, what chapter, common behaviors. And so yeah. if you really go to the pages 254, 55, for those people who Buy the book. If you really want the shortcut, just, just go there. <laughs>
1: That's right. That's right. So let me, let me just say what the archetypes are, just because I think they'll be familiar to people. You know, there, there's the insecure manager, right? This person who, who is not feeling stable in their position or confident in their position. And so therefore they do things like micromanage. They maybe block off your, your ability to interact with others, right? These are, these are the folks that are, really seem, um, you know, they're trying to protect their ego because their ego for them is at at risk in, in their position. Um, then of course you have the pessimist and this is the person who, you know, really believes that bad things are going to happen. They, um, you know, worry about that, but then they also use this, that worry to shoot down ideas There's a flavor of the pessimist, which is another chapter called the victim. And, and that's someone who not only believes bad things are going to happen, but bad things are going to happen just to them, right? And they really feel like people are out to get them, uh, that circumstances are, are, you know, colluding against them. And, and that can also be a really tough behavior to deal with. Um, then there's the passive aggressive peer, right? The person who is not forthcoming about what they're really thinking or feeling. And so they use indirect methods to express those things, um, you know, often driven by failure or rejection. And then we have the know-it-all. Um, this is actually the one I relate to the most, <laughs> not because I have worked with a lot of know-it-alls, but I've been a know-it-all. This is the person, obviously, who's condescending, feels like they need to take up a lot of space. They may be chronic interrupters or even mansplainers. There's the tormentor, which is someone who you expect to be a mentor, um, but they actually um, really are seem to be set on making your life miserable. You know, they've made sacrifices, so they think you should too. There's the bias coworker who commits regular microaggressions, um, you know, discriminates ag- against you. And then you have the political operator. So this is someone who, you know, engages in office politics, which we all do, but really engages it in a way that doesn't show concern for anyone else. So isn't worried about stepping on other people's toes um, or even diminishing people's accomplishments in order to look better themselves. So. In each chapter, I talk about what are the common behaviors, what's motivating this behavior, but then also what tactics can you try? And the tactics generally, this is probably an oversimplification, but there's ones that are sort of indirect. So if we take the insecure manager, for example, research shows that actually calming their ego oftentimes with some well-placed compliments, genuine compliments, um, can help get them to be a little more open to your ideas, to trust you a little bit more. So that might be an indirect method. Um, whereas there might be a more direct method. So for a know-it-all, for example, asking for facts and data when they claim something that they have no, you know, reason to actually believe, saying, what are you basing that on? Right could you share what facts and data have informed your assumptions there right and then even with um you know some of the behaviors you might even call it out more clearly and say you know like the political operator you, you know you seem really focused on getting credit for this and you don't seem to care that others are not getting credit can you can you make sure that we're all sharing um especially since we've all contributed to the to that work so you know, it's, and I do try in each chapter also to share sample language. So, you know, what are the words you can use to actually put some of this advice in practice? Because that's one of the things I find most difficult is when I get advice, I'm like, okay, that makes sense in theory, but what do I actually say? Um, so I've tried to really give people phrases they can use to put some of that advice into practice.
0: Well, I think you're, you're very tactful and there's diplomacy associated with the way in which you communicate with anybody and i sure. think if you take that between the stimulus and the response and you take time to take a breath um most likely the words coming out of your mouth to communicate to the individual even if not in a script but in a way in which you're dampening any kind of conflict that might occur are going to be, be you're going to be better off um right. and i think that's really important and you know in chapter 11 which you said is one of your best chapters in the book. <laughs> you talk about the nine principles for getting along with anybody. Mm-hmm. That's important for people picking up this book. Your friend's principle is focus on what you can control. Um, why is this principle so important, and what uh, does it help us in? And why does it help us in resolving conflict?
1: Yeah. Well, I think in in some ways it's important because. It's it's all we've got. So to be, you know, if you and I, Greg, are in a, in a disagreement and we're having an unhealthy interaction, and I think, well, I just have to get Greg to change, right? I am setting myself up for failure because you're going to change if and when you want to. And certainly a lot of the tactics I share will help nudge you into better behavior, but i can't i can't command that i even and sometimes people are like oh well then just refer to a boss who can make them change i was like i've never i've never known a boss who could actually force someone to change certainly they can wield um you know incentives or um even you know they can punishments over them but oftentimes that that doesn't help either behavior change is hard and so we really only change when we want to so that, that's one key thing. The other thing, if you and I are in this disagreement and you can tell that I'm just focused on changing you, you are going to be more resistant to actually collaborating. So, and that, that can be a real challenge because then you start picking up. I'm just basically intensifying the tension rather than collaborating with you. If rather, if I show up and say, Hey, you know what? This, uh, this situation, this dynamic isn't working for both of us. Here's what I'm going to do differently, right? That opens the door for you to reflect. Now, granted, you might say, great, that will help a lot. And that's it. <laughs> but chances are by modeling the behavior you want to see, you're going to, to, to get some reaction, some positive movement from them and in, in response. And, and that's, I mean, ultimately, again, it's all we contr- can control are our thoughts, our feelings I mean, we can't always control our feelings, but our thoughts, our reactions, um, our behaviors because that's that's what we've got.
0: And I and I, I'll say this because you know the show is about wellness and business and spirituality. There's a there's a Buddhist saying and it's a Buddhist uh, precept and that's the attachment to the outcome, mm-hmm. right? So in other words, if in your mind, which is what Viktor Frankl said, you've already said, well, I'm attached to this certain outcome occurring. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it doesn't always work out the way you exactly expect it. And I think that's really great advice for anybody is like, there's more than one way to solve this problem. It isn't Mm -hmm. always like, the way you want to have this problem solved, That's right? It, it can go in a different direction and the problem can still get resolved. Hard for people to fathom because they believe they're in control. When you don't get attached, you have to let go. Yes. And if you don't let go, what you're done is you've attached yourself emotionally to this issue. So let's yeah. go to your second principle. And it says sure. your perspective is just one perspective. That's what I was basically saying. Yeah, uh, We often forget this, especially when our ego gets in the way. Same yeah. thing, because your ego is that attachment. Speak with us about the power of forgetting to blame the other person.
1: Yeah. Now, I I do want to say there are times when the other person is to blame, right? Like there are people oh, doing sure. abusive things, right? So I don't want to, um, I don't want, again, I, you shouldn't be naive about this. However... I do think you have to recognize in most tense interactions at work, you are, you know, um, you're only seeing your perspective. You're only seeing your view on the situation. And we know from lots of research, in, in particular around this concept of naive realism, <coughs> that, that we assume we know that what we think and what we feel and what how we see the situation is very clear. And if the other person disagrees with us, they're biased, they're misinformed, they're just plain wrong. And that just can't be true <laughs> every time, right? Because if, if I believe I'm right and you believe you're right, well, then what's true? So it's really a matter of understanding there are many ways to see this situation. There's the way you see it. There's the way the other person sees it. There's the way people who care about the resolution see it, the way out, people outside see it. So I really encourage people to ask yourself, What might you be missing? How would someone else in a different position see this? How would the other person see this? And I don't say that out of generosity. This isn't about giving the person the benefit of the doubt, although I do also think that can be helpful. This is about just trying to unhook yourself from the story you're telling yourself about that situation.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, we come into all of these situations with our own biases, but we, we don't really think about that. You know, yeah. it's like you—you you, over years of work, years of learning, years of family life, things you've heard, how you've integrated and put them into your life. The reality is, there's biases. Let's just face yeah. it, and those biases can get in the way of you doing exactly what we said, which was, you know, in this case, looking at a different perspective because you've yeah. got a, such a strong attachment to that. Your third principle is be aware of your biases. There mm-hmm. we yeah. go. Yeah. speak with us if you would about uh, affinity and confirmation bias and how we can become more aware of these biases. Yeah, and
1: affinity and confirmation bias are two of the biases I see play out most often in in you know, unhealthy or difficult relationships, you know, at work. And c- confirmation bias is the idea that once you believe something, or once you have a hunch about something, you start seeing it through that lens. So, if you behave passive aggressively once in a meeting, anytime you do anything, I'm I'm using that passive aggressive lens, right? And I'm saying, oh gosh, isn't Greg so passive aggressive? And just it becomes a reinforcing cycle. That's where the role of gossip plays too, right? Is that we we. Encourage got confirmation bias in one another when we start talking about that person and saying, Well, isn't that person this? Right? Isn't aren't they a pessimist? Aren't they? And it can be really dangerous because you start seeing things that actually aren't there. And so you just double down on your interpretation and it further polarizes you. Affinity bias is the, the bias that we research has shown over and over, we tend to feel more affinity or or more closeness with people who are like us. They share identity factors. They share a view on the world. Maybe we went to the same school or grew up in the same area, right? And we attach ourselves. And that means that when someone's not like us, we might actually be interpreting their behavior as difficult when It's not right when it's actually just different than what we might expect. And so to get to know your own biases and how how you're showing up in these these relationships and in these interactions, you know, there's lots of online tests you can take about your implicit bias. There's a a free test on project implicits, um, which is a team of researchers who came up with that um, and really get it helps you get aware of what biases you might be bringing Similarly, you might try to ask for help. So if you are struggling with a difficult colleague and you think bias might be playing a role, or maybe you don't think it is, but you should ask someone you really trust who understands the situation to say, what role might my bias be playing here? And the last thing is is a a tip I picked up from Kristen Pressner, who's a global HR executive, and she uses something called the flip it to test it. So this helps you really get around that affinity bias. So you know, if someone's doing something you find challenging or pushes your buttons, ask yourself if they were a different gender, if they were a different race, if they had a different background, would I see that behavior in the same way? If they were more like me, how would I see that behavior? If they were more different than me, how would I see that behavior? And I think that that helps you really test whether that, that bias is at play, but you have to be honest with yourself and the answers to really use that.
0: It's so important what you're saying, you know, I'm reflecting back on so many of these interviews, almost a thousand now. And I remember Byron Katie. Mm. And many of my listeners can relate to this. And you know, she used to ask, she'd put two people on the stage, and if there was it was like a conflict, you know, there was some conflict they were talking about in their life. And then she'd ask two very simple questions. The first one was, is it true? And the second one is, is it really true? Mm. Right? And when you think about the simplicity of what she was doing, she was getting you to break down and think about how you've created your biases already, Mm -hmm. right? In other words, oh, you know, I can't get along in this marriage. I can't do this. I can't do that. Is that really true? Yeah. You know, and is it really true? And it resolves so many people's issues, right? Yeah. Yeah. and and i and i think that holds true for for us as individuals i think we talk about msu you live in a world of making stuff up and then you begin to yeah. believe what you make up and then you begin to live out what you made up right because you made it up yeah. but that doesn't mean it's true it just means yeah. you made it up right right so, well,
1: and you're no, you're pointing out something right that i think is really important in all of us and dealing with difficult relationships which is that or challenges in relationships, which is that our brains don't always work with us when we're trying, right? The making the MSU is a natural occurrence in our brain and we have to fight against it in order to resolve these conflicts. I think a lot of us think that instinctively we should know how to actually handle people who push our buttons or challenges in our relationships. And we don't, in fact, we have to overcome some of the natural workings of our brain in order to be more present, in order to be more, um, you know, more um, focused and collaborative in, in those resolutions.
0: Well, you know, I have a bumper sticker here someplace and I can't find it right this minute, but I do remember this from my spiritual psychology class. Um, You don't have to believe everything you think. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Uh, And and I always thought it was just so appropriate, you know, to, Mm-hmm. To really take the essence of that and go, wow, that's a profound statement. Because we're mm-hmm. thinking 6,000 thoughts a day. And then Sorry. we're turning those thoughts into potentially a belief. But yeah. the reality is, is based on what, yeah. right? So, you know, you speak that shaming a person we cannot get along with does not work.
1: All yes. right.
0: Um and you quote Bob Sutton, the author of The No Asshole Rule, which mm-hmm. sums up why this does not work. Calling yeah. people an asshole is one of the most reliable ways to turn someone <laughs> into an asshole or make the make them hate you. Yeah. Why is shame such a bad way to deal with an asshole? And, you know, obviously, you quoted Brene Brown on this subject, yeah. too, in this chapter, being yeah. more vulnerable. but. Um I'd love to I get what this guy is saying, but there's yeah. times where you tied your emotion up and you just say they're an asshole.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it feels good, right? Because it feels good to be like, they're a jerk. I'm done. Like, yeah. And yet it it's it's just never that simple. Plus, I you know, I I would encourage anyone listening to think about a time you felt shame, right? You felt um, you know, as as Brene, you know, defines it as Like the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Did you feel that in that moment and think, Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to change. No, no, you felt shame. You felt deep despair, probably grief, um, embarrassment, right? Though it's not, it's just not an emotion that encourages action. It encourages wallowing. So if you call someone an asshole, they're either going to retaliate, right? They're going to argue with you or they're going to shut down. But by doing something different, like labeling the specific behavior that's bothering you, why it's having an impact on you. Um, you know, that is different, right? That, that gives someone something to work with as opposed to shaming them into thinking that, you know, shaming them and making them feel worthless. You know, worthless people don't rise to the occasion. Right? right? They they actually fall to your worst interpretation of them. Right. And so that I I just can't. I, you know, Brene's work has been so influential in this book and in all my writing, and 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 Bob Sutton too, because it's it's just not. You know, as Brene says, shame is more likely to be a source of destructive, hurtful behavior than a solution or cure. And I think that's just sort of the simplest way to, to explain it.
0: Yeah. And I think in that chapter two, you mentioned guilt. You know, it is, yeah. uh, it is, there is this element of, you know, you feel guilty when you're shamed yeah. um, and you have no basis for it because it's only someone else who shamed you that makes you feel these insecure feelings about yourself, yeah. which then leads to a long string of psychological issues that you start to deal with associated with this especially if it's recurring right it's like Mm. you know this is how um frequently women will say though i can never leave the marriage but they stay in this marriage where it's abusive because they've been shamed so much right and so think about it it's really a, a, a quite a dilemma uh, to try and work your way out of it. Well, no, I really love the guy. Like, how can you love this guy? I mean, how did you get this perception that this is the way that it's going to be? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, so I look at vulnerability. What Brene talks about is really very, very important, but it's yeah. got to be a two-way street. Yeah. Right? And, in other words, that's yeah. got to be used both directions in vulnerability. Both people have to be willing to be vulnerable.
1: Yes. And, and you can't, you can't guarantee that the other person is going to do that. So the question is, is it safe for you? And I, you know, I go back, I think about the story you told at the beginning of the broker, like, was it, would it have been safe for him to be vulnerable? Probably not. Like he might've made the right decision to leave. Um, but then how does he recover from that? How does right. he recover? You know, we, we published an article uh, on Harvard business review review recently that had to recover from a toxic workplace. And the reality is those, they have a real impact. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's the same impact as Viktor Frankl experienced, of course, but it's, it's the, it, there is emotional damage that we have to recognize that these relationships or these interactions or these work cultures have on us, um, and we have to make sure we prioritize our own well-being in order to recover from them, so that we can go into the next workplace or the next interaction or even the next dealing with the difficult person in a in a more resilient way. Um, now, I, I also want to be clear, and uh, you know, there's there are people who are, who who are causing that damage. I do believe the systems and the leaders in those systems need to to address that. They should not tolerate it. They certainly should not reward it. Um, you know, there is a role to play, and at the same time, you also need to watch out for yourself and make sure you're, you're taking. Well, care it's in,
0: of it's important to for those who are listening, and I think they, they let them, many of them know. It's you know, like, a, what's the consciousness of the organization? But, you know, it's from the top down. Um, is this um, uh, allowing to is are we continuing to allow this to occur because then what happens is the morale in an organization and the productivity and all the other things associated with it just diminish right yes. as a result yeah. of this so it's very it when a corporation says what is our wellness and what is our human capital and you know the investment that we've made in it they really care about making these things better and, you know, your book is filled with great advice and support for individuals dealing with conflict at work. What are three things that you want to have the listeners remember regarding dealing with conflict today or dealing with difficult people, whatever it may be? And if they could apply it, in other words, something, hey, here's a takeaway. You mm-hmm. can use this, like, go to work tomorrow and apply this. Sure, sure.
1: Well, one thing, one is sort of a, a mindset change and then a Talk with some more practical things, but um, number one is I would say just remember, and I try to pay attention to this in the book, is that we've all done these things before. I mean, who among us haven't hasn't been the pessimist in the room, or hasn't been passive aggressive at times, or maybe even you know played office politics in a way that benefited you, and maybe you know wasn't beneficial for someone else. We've all done these things, so re- keep that in mind when you're dealing with someone. That, and actually there's some really interesting research that shows that we are all capable under the right circumstances of being the difficult coworker, whether that's the abusive supervisor, right? It's, it's, it's oftentimes about the circumstances we find ourselves in, not the, the flawed personality of, of someone. So that's, that's one thing I really want people to take away. The second, and, and I think this is very practical is you, as you said, the book is full of tactics, but and it can be overwhelming of like, okay, well, what do I do? Or you can think, okay, great. I'm just going to do all this and it's going to be fixed. But I really believe that this, you have to treat this like an experiment. So find one or two tactics you want to try out for a short period of time, try them out, take some notes, what worked, what didn't, in what circumstances did it work? Then um, try out a few more and then try out, you know, and it, you have to be a scientist. Like you have to put on that scientist hat and think about, okay, This is an experiment I'm going to try out and see how it how it goes. Um, And then the last thing I would say, you know, your mental health and your well-being, you know, I think about your your broker friend. Right. It is incredibly important to take care of that. And so really also make sure you're emotionally disengaging from the situation when you need to. And that might be leaving your job. But hopefully that's really just about putting distance between you and the other person. If there's someone who's really abusive over email, can you make sure you don't have email exchanges with them? You talk on the phone. If you... You know, just find different ways or can you make sure, okay, before you interact with them, do something you really enjoy. Look at pictures of your kids on your phone or your last vacation, right? Or listen to, after you're done with them, go for a long walk. Something that just helps to clear your mind and remind yourself this interaction is not making, this is not your entire experience at work. And this is not your entire experience of you and other people. Remind yourself of the good connections that you have
0: of kind of the shifting sands that can occur. Things can change, right? In other words, it's it's not permanent. We frequently look at it as permanent, but it isn't because people can change their mindset. Uh, You can change your mindset and these issues can become resolved. We have been speaking with Amy Gallo. The book is Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. You can find out more about Amy at com That's her website. We'll put a link to that in our blog as well. Uh, for all those people who are working inside companies, I don't think you could have a better book to get, especially if you're in a management position and you want to teach some of the people in the organization how to use these tactics and identify uh, the people in the archetypes This is really a good way to start. You should go to Amy's website too, because then you can get more information about her and the book and what she's doing. Um, Amy, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, spending a few minutes with our listeners uh, discussing your new book. And I wish you all the best. And thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.